0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW, group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 198th episode of Awards Chat, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most beloved and respected film actors of our time or any other. He has given unforgettable performances in more movies than just about anyone else who has ever practiced his profession. 1984's Splash, 1988's Big, 1992's A League of Their Own, 1993's Sleepless in Seattle and Philadelphia, 1994's Forrest Gump, 1995's Apollo 13, and Toy Story 1998's Saving Private Ryan and You've Got Mail, 1999's The Green Mile, 2000's Castaway, 2002's Catch Me If You Can, 2013's Captain Phillips, 2015's Bridge of Spies, 2016's Sully, and most recently, as Ben Bradley, the Washington Post's late editor in chief, opposite Meryl Streep as the Post's late publisher, Catherine Graham, in Steven Spielberg's terrific new drama about the Pentagon Papers, The Post. Over the course of Hank's 38 years in the acting profession, he has received five Oscar nominations, all for Best Actor, for Big, Philadelphia, Forrest Gump, Saving Private Ryan, and Castaway. For Philadelphia and Forrest Gump, he became the only person other than Spencer Tracy ever to win Best Actor Oscars in back-to-back years. And yet, despite all of these accolades and his standing as his generation's Jimmy Stewart, the ideal American who everyone adores, I can't help but feel that he remains underappreciated. It's not uncommon for people to take for granted those they love, but it's also not right. Hanks has been making the difficult look easy for so long that some just assume he's not working very hard, but a closer examination of the complexity of the characters he takes on and the performances he gives reveals a very different picture. To be sure, he has played more than a few ordinary men who, upon being confronted with an extraordinary challenge, rise to the occasion, but each of them are very different, and besides, he has played many other types of characters in between. In the 17 years since Hanks was last nominated for an Oscar—I repeat, 17 years—he has done magnificent and diverse work in Catch Me If You Can, 2002's Road to Perdition, 2004's The Terminal, 2007's Charlie Wilson's War, 2011's Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, 2012's Cloud Atlas, Captain Phillips, 2013's Saving Mr. Banks, Bridge of Spies, Sully, and now The Post. I would submit that if someone had never seen a Tom Hanks film prior to seeing any of these, his work in the 21st century would be far more appreciated and celebrated than it has been. In any event, it was my goal during our time together to get beyond what we already know about Hanks, that he's a very likable guy, that he's an incredibly talented actor, and that he starred in a lot of movies people love, and try to understand what really makes him tick. But first, I sat down at the Four Seasons in Los Angeles with Bob Ghazali, the president and CEO of the American Film Institute, which has been a staple of the Hollywood community for the last half century, almost exactly. In 2017, it celebrated its 50th anniversary. Bob started working at AFI in 1992 and became its third president after George Stevens Jr. and Gene Picker-Furstenberg in 2007, when the organization's board, at the urging of Sean Connery, among others, chose him for its top job. Over the 25-plus years since he came to the organization, he has served AFI on both coasts. After spending his first two years in L.A., he moved to New York for five years to run AFI's national programs and then returned to L.A. for eight years as head of AFI Productions before becoming president of the entire organization. He was largely responsible for AFI's 100 Years series, through which the organization broadcasts the results of industry-wide surveys about great movies to a national TV audience. He is largely responsible for making the AFI Conservatory one of the finest film schools in the world. And last but not least, he created the AFI Awards Ceremony, which annually honors the 10 best films and 10 best TV shows of each year as chosen by AFI juries. And it's from that which we have just come. Bob, congrats on another great AFI Awards, and thank you for joining us on the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So just first of all, where were you
2: born and raised, and how did you get into the movies in the first place? I was born in the city of Orange, California. My father was a pilot in the Marine Corps, so home was different every three years. So I lived in California, North Carolina, California, Hawaii, California, Florida, California, Virginia, Seattle, Virginia, and that's when I went to the University of Virginia. So it was actually good training for what I do today which is that when you walk into a room, you know you have a limited amount of time to say hello, make an impact, and depart.
1: <laughs> and so you
2: were into movies, though. Was there a catalytic event? You will think I'm making this up, but, I mean, I've been a fan of movies since as long as I can remember. But the the catalyst moment for me was in 1974, mm-hmm. The AFI honored Jimmy Cagney. <laughs> and I watched that show on CBS. Really? I remember the CBS special logo coming. It was like bump, 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 right. bump, 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 <laughs> bump. And then I watched the community gather in a place with no competition to honor an icon of American cinema. And I realized there were people like me. That loved the movies as much as I do and appreciated them. And literally, the next day, and I know people have used the word literally, (laughs) but literally, the next day, I became an AFI member. This is in 1974. So in those days, what, you got the magazine? I got American Film Magazine, and I have been a member ever since including a year when you're where I signed up to go on an AFI tour of Russia, believe it or not. (laughs) Did you do it? No, no, no. It was the Soviet Union. My apologies. (laughs) It was the Soviet Union. And I still have a letter from my predecessor, Gene Furstenberg, who said, I'm sorry we've had to cancel the trip because the Soviet Union has fallen. (laughs) So AFI has always been somehow part of my DNA. Amazing. So from what I understand,
1: you go off to University of Virginia, you graduate in 1987, and then just a year later... You started something called the Virginia Festival of American Film, and that was important because, in a way, that led to you formally becoming associated with AFI. So can you connect the dots?
2: Yeah, here's what happened, and it's imperative to every chapter of my life. All of it was a door opening and me walking through. Mm -hmm. What you'll discover here is there's very little skill involved. When the University of Virginia decided that they were going to have a film festival, a a place in Thomas Jefferson's academical village to discuss the art form, I was invited to the first meeting at the president's house with a giant knocker on the door like it was imposing beyond hell. And here's why I was invited, because they needed a token student. (laughs) That was my gift. I was the student. I was the projectionist at the student theater, and I programmed the movies there. Right. But I was the guy who was like Grrr, and changing the reels, and they were like, "Bring him in." And oh, you were what a senior at this point, or something? I had just yes, I was a fourth year. They called it right, right, so I was right. fourth year. And when I walked in that room, there was not only the president of the university, but Sissy Spacek, who lived in Cobham, Virginia, Jack Valenti, the late great David Brown, the film producer. Wow. And Jeannie Furstenberg, who ran the AFI. So after that meeting, when people realized how much work it was going to take to run a film festival, I raised my hand to say I would do it. I had nothing else to do. (laughs)
1: Well, because, yeah, what was the plan? You were about to graduate. What
2: would you have done? Right. I would have bartended. That would have been me. Seriously? Dead serious. And instead, I helped to begin a film festival that is still thriving today. It's a really great event.
1: And then... What happened, I guess you must have done an okay job because four years later you formally were hired for the first time by Gene Picker, first Yes, she
2: Yes, she was on our board at the Virginia Film Festival and I remember she sat with me outside of the Boar's Head Inn. Sitting next to her was Charlton Heston. Wow. And she said, why don't you come to the AFI and do what you do here, but do it on a national scale? And... Even though that was now nearly 30 years ago, you can hear, I remember the impact mm-hmm. of every word. What a gift. And
1: that first job for those first two years, what were you doing?
2: Well, it was an interesting time at the AFI because when I arrived, the funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, which forever had been a mainstay of the AFI, had begun to wobble. It was in the wake of the Maplethorpe yeah. photos and things like that where it was a congressional discussion of priorities. And even though AFI was, you know, the standard bearer for cinema, somehow the argument got skewed to the idea that it, was, it should be different. So my job, and this was really under the leadership of Gene Furstenberg, was to find an entrepreneurial way to imagine a nonprofit, which is an almost impossible puzzle these days. Mm-hmm. How do you protect a high standard Without selling out, because it's easy to raise money. But then when you look in the mirror, are you still who you are? (laughs) And so that's what we do at the AFI and what you experience today at AFI Awards. It is an event, in one simple example, where when we honor you, we honor 10 movies and 10 television programs. When we honor you, we do not then ask you to pay to attend.
1: People don't realize how common that actually is to do that to people. Congratulations, you've been nominated for three awards at whatever, and that's going to require two table purchases for $10,000.
2: Yeah, or yeah, or $50,000. Right, and right. then you feel like, wait, I want to be there, right? right? <laughs> so anyway, the, we're lucky that we're an organization that is able to hold up a standard, but do so with the right friends.
1: So today the AFI annual budget, from what I read, is something like $32 million. Where does that come from, then?
2: Some of that is conservatory funding. Some of that is trustees of the American Film Institute. And much of it is people who believe, as we do, that movies matter. We have members across the nation in every state. And they support the AFI for different reasons. Some are passionate about film preservation and ensuring that their memories... Their childhood memories remain for other generations to enjoy. Some are passionate about attending big red carpet events, Mm -hmm. which we do, like AFI Fest. Mm -hmm. And some are passionate about ensuring that young people have a voice and making sure that film education is a way to move this culture forward.
1: Can you give a rough percentage of how much the studios
2: contribute to this as supporters of AFI? It's not, it's not such a focus on the studios. They're all supportive. But I could go through a long list of corporations across America mm. that are of equal footing in terms of what they give. Mm-hmm. So it's beyond this community because the movies are beyond this community. Mm. Yeah. Let's just focus for a second
1: on AFI Conservatory. Where
2: How many students do you have there? The maximum amount of students that we enroll each year is 280. And I need you to pause on that for a minute because there is a constant comparison of film programs Mm -hmm. around this country. And the AFI program, first of all, is not an undergraduate program. It's a two-year MFA program. But it is intimate. That body of fellows, 280, is the size of some classes at other film schools. This is everybody we enroll. And the difference is this. There are six disciplines. And they're divided up into directors, producers, screenwriters, editors, production designers, and cinematographers. Mm -hmm. And they make movies. Mm -hmm. We promise these young men and women that over two years, you're going to make at least four movies. Because we believe that you learn by doing. You do not learn by reading a textbook. You do not learn by taking a test and judging yourself. You get out there and make a movie at 2 in the morning with your friends.
1: And what's kind of amazing and I would imagine unique is that you guys are right basically
2: in Hollywood, which has its advantages too. It has an enormous—geography plays a large role in the success of the conservatory.
1: I just want to read a few names of people who I know are alums of yours. Terence Malick, David Lynch, Caleb Deschanel, Paul Schrader, Edward Zwick, Marshall Herskovitz— Darren Aronofsky, and then a few people who were there today as honorees. I think you said 30 of the people who were associated with one of the 10 films or 10 TV shows, including Patty Jenkins, director of Wonder Woman, Janusz Kaminski, the cinematographer for Steven Spielberg's The Post, and on and on and on. Have you ever had a year like this year with 30 represented among your
2: 10? We've seen an increasing number year after year. And what we attribute that to, because we've done studies with the alumni of AFI, and what we found is that 81% of them are working in the industry. That is an extraordinary number for people who question the time and the expense Mm -hmm. of a secondary education. Because what's the norm, probably?
1: The average for other film schools, I would not think over 50%. I don't,
2: I'm don't. i not sure what the others yeah. are, but 81%. And I even got letters from people in response to our survey who said, I live on a horse farm in Vermont. I'm very happy. I decided <laughs> not to be a director. Right. <laughs> but if you want to work, this is a good place to do it. And here's why. Because that rigorous schedule that I described, where you're going to make at least four movies over two years— and as one of our graduates said, it's like grad school on steroids. Yeah. Like, say goodbye to your friends. You're right. going to make movies for two years. Right. What we've found is that the high employment rate of graduates who come out of AFI is due to the camaraderie that you have when you're there for two years. Because when one person gets out and gets a job, they invite their friends along with them. I think
1: Aronofsky works with a number of other AFI. Yes, along, he does. So...
2: Sam Esmail is one of my favorite examples now, yeah. who created Mr. Robot for USA Network. He graduated from AFI. He pitched and created and scored big with Mr. Robot. And he brought so many of his talented writer friends with him. That's the sign of collaboration. That's cool.
1: And also, I don't think there's a better commencement ceremony location than where you guys do, it, which, as I understand it, is the Chinese Theater, formerly known as Grauman's. Exactly right. That's pretty neat. So, all right, what I have to ask you, because I have to put it out there that I don't think I would be personally involved with movies in any way had I not come upon a question on who wants to be a millionaire when I was in just about to go into ninth grade where the question was essentially which of these four movies was recently chosen as the greatest of all time by the American Film Institute, which I had never heard of. And I then got the full AFI list. I decided I was going to suffer through one long weekend, suffer through the top four, just so I could brag to people that I had seen them. And then I got hooked. And so within a year, I was done with the full 100, and I wanted more lists. So I found out there was a guy, I believe it was... Chris Merrill out here who does a great job with a lot of your AFI productions related stuff and the montage each year for the AFI awards. But somebody very nicely sent me the booklet of the 400, the ballot that had gone out of the 400 that you picked the 100 from. I started going through those. I got so hooked that really it became an obsession. And then each year you would give me a, a new hit of the drug when CBS would air another AFI 100 List It wasn't at first, it was the just the one hundred greatest. then there were one hundred comedies, one hundred thrillers on and on and on. And so I have to ask you because I understand you were really the driving force behind that series, how did it start? Why did it start? And you know, thank you again for doing
2: it. Well, that's why we do it. yeah, your story is exactly the embodiment of purpose. I have to say, success has many fathers, and so the The person that I remember saying, you know what, we should really count down the 100 greatest movies of all time was a gentleman named Lee Tomlinson who stood in the hallway and said, what do you think of this idea? Mm. And the board debated it at a high level for many years. And there were pros and cons because the AFI can't say that one movie's better than another movie. (laughs) It's completely subjective. And of course, that's true. But that wasn't the point. The point was to catalyze a global conversation about what makes a good movie and why. So that it's not just about the weekend box office, it's about what's your favorite. And so on the first list, there were glaring omissions. For example, there were people picketing the AFI because Buster Keaton the General. was not <laughs> on the list. Right, yeah. And by the way, they were right, right. right. But here's the thing, Buster Keaton was then part of the conversation. Right. right, right. And 10 years later, When the AFI counted down again the 100 greatest movies of all time, which we do every decade, Mm -hmm. the general was on the list. I have to believe that keeping these stories alive and the work of these great artists, well, that's our job. Well, can you just explain for people who don't
1: know how these lists came to be? Because it's basically you're reaching out to the industry. It's not just the AFI brain trust that's weighing in, right? And then also, I'm very excited by something you just said, which is that you're saying it's every 10 years? Because I was sad that it seemed like it was over. So are we going to have another AFI I, list?
2: I'll get to that. Okay, Break, okay. Breaking
1: news. Oh, breaking great. News. No, it really is to me.
2: Well, the way the list is determined, we polled the community. And there was great debate, again, at the board level of, do you invite the public? Do you invite the... But that's what everybody does. That's what the internet is, mm-hmm. is the the collective voice of people. And that's wonderful. Great. But what the board decided was... Let's poll the experts, people who have thought about it. Now, that does, what is an expert? Mm-hmm. Our jury is 1,500 people from across the community. And by that, I mean actors, actresses, editors, cinematographers, artists, mm-hmm. but also archivists, historians, scholars. In other words, it's a rich intellectual group of people who say, consider this, if you will. So their collective vote of the 1,500 then ranks into the 100 greatest of all time. And so you're saying there may be another? Well, let me tell you what I do know. Okay. Because you're right that in 1990, was it Mm 8? 1998, Mm -hmm. the AFI counted down the 100 greatest movies of all time. It was such a great success that it was followed by the 100 greatest movie stars, the funniest movies, the greatest movie quotes. And we went for a decade. And let let me just interject that it was
1: not... I guess Gene has put out a book this year about on the occasion of the 50th or so was last year where I was looking through it before this conversation. It sounds like it, part of the reason there was a debate about doing the 100 years stuff was that it was so expensive to license the footage and complicated,
2: just logistically that that was a potential roadblock as well, right? Yes, and that's an interesting production issue because when you look at... What is available on television today in terms of celebrating classic films, accessing a single clip from a a great movie requires the permission of a number of people. The AFI is in an extraordinary position where the studios are on our board, Mm -hmm. the guilds are represented on our board... And they all know that we're going to do it. We're going to celebrate their work at a high standard. Mm-hmm. And so with their support, we're able to do it. Mm-hmm. But I challenge you or anybody to find any, three hours of celebrating classic movies. You just simply can't afford mm-hmm. it today. Yeah, right. So with the support of the community, we were able to do it. That's great. And
1: just to come back one more time, you say there is a future for this.
2: Well, yeah, I think now, because 20 years have passed since the first countdown. That's crazy. And the question in our culture is, what is a movie? When you count down the 100 greatest movies of all time, what is a movie? Mm -hmm. And so the debate within the halls of AFI, and soon to be, I hope, outside the walls of AFI— We're happy to help with that. (laughs) Good. We accept. —is, should there be television involved? Because what is, it's a delivery system. Mm -hmm. That's simply what we're talking about now. So is the question whether to have separate lists
1: or combine it as just great visual works or what, is that part of the issue?
2: Well, we have people, for example, that say you cannot compare the godfather to friends. Right. You cannot do that. And then there are people on the other side of the table that say, but wait, you're comparing the godfather to Woody Allen's bananas. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. In other words, isn't it just the way you receive it? The story. And I sat with a a noted filmmaker who was involved with The Godfather, and we were having lunch, and somebody came up and said, The Godfather is my favorite movie of all time. And he said to this young fan, how did you see it? And this person said, I own the DVD. Said it with great pride. Right. And this gentleman from The Godfather said, Well, then maybe it's your favorite TV show. (laughs) Now, these are the conversations that I believe should take place. We often, I believe, in our country get so bogged down in the idea, is one better? Mm -hmm. Is the experience of the cinema the ultimate? Mm -hmm. Or is it the accessibility of being able to watch it on your television, your iPad, whatever? That debate can rage on. We choose not to be part of it. Mm -hmm. We encourage storytelling in all its forms. Do I personally prefer the, the big movie theater experience? Mm-hmm. You bet. Mm-hmm. Like, I am not watching Dunkirk on right. an iPad. <laughs> but I also applaud the idea that if you wish to be home and watch The Godfather, you may.
1: Do you feel at all personally conflicted about the rise of the streaming services, your Netflixes and Amazons and Hulus? Because on the one hand, they've created a lot more professional opportunities for your students and it's, you know, there's just tons more content that's out there. On the other hand, there are going to, it seems, be fewer big screen experiences because of them, that people are just happier to consume their stuff either at home on a TV or on their, you know, iPad or iPhone or whatever. So how do you feel about their ascension?
2: I applaud it. And I do so because many years ago, one of our very wise trustees Todd Wagner said to me, picture professional football. Some people choose to go to the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. They fly to Indianapolis. (laughs) They buy an expensive ticket. They get a hotel room. They sit in the back. They can't even see the game. They buy a $9 beer. They get a $4 hot dog. They don't like the guy next to them. (laughs) But that's what they want. It's bigger than life. And you say, I went to the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. You know what? I like to sit on my couch. Right. <laughs> Why shouldn't we all have that choice? Right.
1: I know it's, it's probably de- still a divisive issue for a lot of people, but it's, it's interesting. Now, just for one second to come back to the AFI 100 topic, do you find it disparating, because I know I do, to have conversations with people even in this town where you would think people are more passionate and knowledgeable about film than anywhere and find how little a lot of people, even in high positions, know or care about film history, classic movies. I mean, I thought the great value of the 100 Years series was encouraging, fueling, feeding that interest, and it certainly did that for me and a lot of other people I know, but – I would not let somebody out of the mailroom at an agency or a studio until they've seen those 100 movies. They will do their job so much better if they can say, wait a minute, I'm reading the script that you've asked me to give notes on, and I can see that based on the way things were handled in The Maltese Falcon— we can improve this scene by doing X, Y, or Z. Instead, you say the Maltese Falcon to somebody in in this town and 99 times out of 100, there's no familiarity whatsoever. What's your take on why that's the situation and whether or not there's a way, perhaps through AFI,
2: to rectify that? It is the question of the moment and I think you've articulated it beautifully because it's not even how much we value our past. It's how much do we choose to access it? So what we've found in our in this kind of cultural change that's been happening is that there's a bell curve and the favorite movies or the best movies, depending, most outstanding, whatever words you right. want to use, begin to get older. And what we found through our studies is that it's because you believe that what you experience as a child is what's most precious Mm -hmm. and most important and most defining. Mm -hmm. And so that's what you believe has changed the world because you found it. And so that's what I attribute this to. But, and and I don't disagree with what, how you've defined a lot of the community here, but I do know this, the people that are truly scoring and truly out there working have the most adept vocabulary and a passion for experiencing what others have considered great, that's the ticket. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: It's not come out to Hollywood and hope you get lucky. Mm -hmm. It's work hard. And work hard means read a lot, Mm -hmm. watch a lot of movies, like dig in. Yeah,
1: And to the read a lot part, I would also just recommend to people the two books that you guys have put out. I think George Stevens coordinated these, but Conversations at the AFI featuring – transcripts of seminars that you guys have had there over the decades, which I found fascinating because, you know, how often can you sit down and read, you know, 20 pages with anyone from Thomas Schoonmacher to Terrence Malick, I think at one point even, who doesn't talk to anybody. It's, I just thought it was uh, very valuable there as well. But we'll give you a chance to educate listeners about a few other things you guys do.
2: What's AFI Docs? AFI Docs is an event in Washington, D.C. every year that is now entering its second decade. And it's where we celebrate documentary films. And we bring together the leading documentary filmmakers of our nation together with, Mm -hmm. this is the important part, Mm -hmm. our nation's leaders. Mm -hmm. So when you're introducing a film at AFI Docs, you look out into the audience and there's a number of senators Nancy Pelosi once said to me, I wish this many people showed up for a vote. (laughs) There's a Supreme Court justice because these are filmmakers. These are artists who are saying, I have something to say that I believe should change the world. Mm -hmm. And at AFI, we believe, here's your audience. Bring it to the people. Bring it to the people who, in theory, have the ability to do that. And so that's AFI Docs.
1: And I I love, I know an example from this year was Icarus, which... Meanwhile, is responsible for why Russia will not be in the
2: 2018 Olympics. So Think of the impact yeah, yeah. that these storytellers have. That's what seems to be lost in the noise of red carpets and who are you wearing. Mm-hmm. That's fun. Right. But the reality of it is this is the world's most powerful art form.
1: AFI Fest, another annual thing you guys do. This happens in the month of November, November exactly. of each year. And... THR as, as one of the supporters. We do our indie contenders panel there, which is a lot of fun. We get some... Well, it's not, not only a lot of
2: fun. You get... The turnout you get is extraordinary.
1: <laughs> that talent. Well, it's, it's a, because they, they show up for AFI. So what's that fest about? How did you get into the business of film festivals?
2: The idea of film festivals is also, when you go back and contextualize the evolution of the art form, when the AFI was born 50 years ago, if you wanted to see Casablanca for example, mm-hmm. you had to wait for the the man or woman who was running the projection machine to begin it. Like you had to wait. Right. Now that movies are accessible around the world at, you know, with the click of a button, the idea of gathering people together to celebrate as a community is why we need film festivals mm-hmm. that you share it with somebody else. And What we encourage everybody to do, because we show over 100 movies during the week at the Chinese Theater and in the heart of Hollywood, is pick a movie that you don't think you're going to like. Allow a storyteller to take you down a path. People, you should see the face when they say, what, I'm going to see a movie I don't think I like? But your your horizon expands, and that's what we're trying to do at AFI Fest. Movies from around the world, I encourage people, there was a silent film from Nigeria. Go! Mm-hmm. When else in your life yeah. will you be able to do that,
1: <laughs> right? Of the major film festivals in the world, it's the only one that happens to be in Hollywood. There's others, TCM, classic film, people do great stuff. But of the ones where new movies that are currently being promoted, you know, on a major level, that is the only one. So it's a, a big one. AFI Life Achievement Award. Uh, Coming back to your experience in 1974 with Cagney, this happens every year. This year was Diane Keaton. But every year it's a pretty amazing thing because there's this dais of all-stars who turn out for whoever it is that you're honoring. What's been the secret to keeping that alive and fresh as
2: the years have gone by? It's tradition. It's an ideal that the AFI was... Handed and and in fact even created in 1973 with the first recipient who was John Ford. Uh-huh. And the idea was simple but profound in that this nation should celebrate film artists as other artists around the world are celebrated. Now, this is the days before you got a Life Achievement Award if a new DVD came out <laughs> or you had a book you had to sell. Right, right. It is a non-competitive moment for the world to pause and say, wow. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I love most about the Life Achievement Award is the recipient's friends are there, their family is there. But in addition to that, the ballroom is filled with the community.
1: Right. They can get seats. It's at the Dolby where the Oscars is held. Yeah. It's a big house and people get to, you're right, to, show up for their their favorites. Let's do the AFI Awards. This is number here, 17. N- number guess, 17 yeah. because it started when you it started in 2000. Up.
2: Exact. Started in 2000.
1: So, you know, again, it seems like one of these things that could be tricky like a greatest movies list where AFI is going to weigh in on what the best is of in the middle of an award season where this stuff is, you know, like bare knuckle brawling between these studios and their films and all that. And you guys dare to say these are not ranking them, but these are the ten for the year. And then it became ten TV shows as well. What was the conversation that led to this?
2: The creation of AFI Awards was really that moment at the turn of the century. Believe it or not, you and I lived through the turn (laughs) of the century. We think that's old, but because you stop for a moment, both personally and professionally, at at a landmark moment, and say, "Okay, what are we doing now?" And this was right in the wake of the great success of the 100-Years series. Yeah. And what the trustees decided was, we've had great success looking back and celebrating the past. But what we should do is create an annual almanac. That was the word. And there was, at one point,
1: literally an almanac,
2: right? I think I bought it. Exactly. Yeah. To say, this is this year. Yeah. This is what's excellent in this year. That was the simple idea. No winners. No losers. No losers. Just, again, it's a form of a jury like the 1,500 who vote for the 100 greatest. Scholars, trustees, film artists, historians who gather together and argue to the death about what
1: belongs in a top 10. So their mandate is to pick the greatest or their personal favorites, or
2: what are they instructed to do? When we gather, I say... The game here is not to end with a list of your favorite movies. That cannot happen. Mm -hmm. Your job is to ensure that we have criteria that includes like cultural impact. Mm -hmm. Because let's be honest, every movie hits everybody differently, right? Mm -hmm. And when people say to me, I didn't like that movie. Mm I don't hear it's a bad movie. They're telling me about themselves. Mm -hmm. That's what's fascinating about this stuff. This is what defines it as art, by the way. Mm -hmm. Somebody says, that movie sucked. And you're like, (laughs) well, that's interesting because I liked it. Right. Now, here's what's happening. We're not discussing the movie anymore. Right. We're discussing (laughs) who that person is and who I am. And that's what's fascinating about this. We're both looking at the same movie.
1: Right. And so what? when you talk about cultural impact, that I would assume would largely account for something like Wonder Woman being on your top 10 list this year. A summer blockbuster adapted from a comic book franchise is not generally what we see honored at the end of the year. We've There have been things like The Dark Knight that came close and whatever, but that got more applause than any movie today when its clip was shown. Is that a place where AFI feels that maybe we can highlight something today happens to be the day that the Academy starts voting for its nominees. That's That's probably just a coincidence, but I mean, is there some hope that in highlighting whatever work you highlight each year that you, that you encourage others who have to now make similar decisions to, you know, go off of that list?
2: Well, our goal is to say these are excellent Mm -hmm. and then that's up to others to decide. But if one more person Mm -hmm. goes to see the Shape of Water. Right. Or Call Me By Your Name. Or The Big Sick. Or if they go back to see Wonder Woman again to say, Really? Mm-hmm. Great. Then we've done our job.
1: Can you just share for anyone who wasn't lucky enough to be in the room, say, What are the 10 AFI picks for film and TV this year?
2: Well, these are in alphabetical order, which yep. is important. Yes. We don't rank in any way, shape, or form. So the movies of the year, as determined by the jury for AFI, are The Big Sick, Call Me By Your Name, Dunkirk, The Florida Project, Get Out, Lady Bird, The Post, The Post, by the way, written by a graduate of the American Film Institute, Lisanna, Shape of Water, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and Wonder Woman, which I have to say was directed by Patty Jenkins, an AFI alum. Now, the television programs are The Big Little Lies, The Crown, Feud, Betty and Joan, Game of Thrones, The Good Place, The Handmaid's Tale. Insecure, Master of None, and Stranger Things 2. Oh, and This Is Us. And then we also presented a special award this year to Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's epic nonfiction piece, The Vietnam War, which ran on PBS. That's an extraordinary work. Absolutely. So last two things, if
1: I may. AFI has had a lot of cool connections to the White House going back to the beginning. It was first announced that there would be an AFI In 1965, LBJ did it in the Rose Garden. Nixon showed up at that first AFI Life Achievement tribute, even though he was about to go down because of Watergate. Obama, I think, welcomed you guys for a film festival at the White House. I have to ask, how has
2: Mr. Trump been to work with? We haven't worked with the White House yet, and it's not that we would rule it out. Our job is to find a way to celebrate the art form at its highest levels. And so... Some people welcome that idea. Mm-hmm. Our job is to insist upon it. We haven't dreamt up the right idea for the Trump White House. Right. You can make up that <laughs> idea in your head. In other words, is that funny or not? Right. But when we do, you'll be the first to know. All right,
1: good. And then lastly, what's sort of the big picture future for AFI and for you at it? I know that you know some film schools have begun expanding outside of the country even. I think SCAD, for instance, has a Hong Kong campus. Is that something you guys are looking at? Is the curriculum for the conservatory being tailored in any way to the new forms of media that are emerging like virtual reality, like short form entertainment, which seems to be much more welcomed with the ADD epidemic around the country? Just things like that. What's changing and and
2: what do you see as your own future there? I think the future is this art form. There are some who wonder if the printed word will exist in 200 years, or will it all be images? You see there's no more cursive writing. Look at hieroglyphics Mm -hmm. from Egypt, right? In other words, it becomes beyond now. So when you consider the weight of that responsibility and what we're teaching people and what they see and therefore what they feel our future is in the education of the art form and how to tell these stories. And to answer your question about technology and virtual reality and the rest, at the AFI Conservatory, we spend less time on technology. Nobody in 1969, when the conservatory opened, had a class on how camera worked. Nobody. So the idea that now we have to know the technology, that's for others, we believe. Mm -hmm. Our job is to teach story. And I could say it probably most powerfully this way. When I began at AFI, most of the fellows wanted to make The Godfather. That was the gold standard. Mm -hmm. Then there was a generation that wanted to make Breaking Bad. (laughs) Everybody, that's the way they're going to do it. And now they don't know. Mm -hmm. They arrive hungry to tell stories. They don't care so much how it gets out. Mm Some of them dream of the big silver screen. Some of them are cool with an eight-picture Netflix thing. Some people are happy with a two-minute thing on a phone. Mm-hmm. We don't determine it. And on opening day of every conservative I say, you pick your delivery system. Mm-hmm. We will teach you how to tell a story.
1: That's great. Well, thanks again for a great event today with the AFI Awards. And I thank you again, really. I'm not exaggerating when I say I don't think I would be sitting across from you had it not been for the 100 years and all the other great work you guys do. So, Bob Ghazali, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. And now for my interview with Tom Hanks. Over the course of our conversation at the Ritz-Carlton in New York, the 61-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, how a tumultuous childhood may have forced him to learn how to be the likable guy he is known as, and what, during high school, led him to become quite religious and also to try acting for the first time. How he was shaped as an actor by the years he spent in college and then immediately after he dropped out of it. Until, through a freak series of events, he, a father at the age of just 21, landed a starring role on the ABC sitcom Bosom Buddies in 1980, which in turn helped to lead to his first starring role in a film, Splash. How, over several years after his star-making turn in Big, he grew miserable with the direction his career was taking. He felt he was playing an endless stream of quote-unquote pussies, and what he did to shake things up and reemerge with one of the most incredible three-year periods in Hollywood history, with Philadelphia, Sleepless in Seattle, Forrest Gump, Apollo 13, and Toy Story all coming out between 1993 and 1995, followed by his directorial debut, That Thing You Do, in 1996, which in turn spawned his own production company, Playtone, which he co-founded and has run with Gary Getzman since 1998. What is at the root of his special relationship with Steven Spielberg? for whom he starred in Saving Private Ryan, Catch Me If You Can, The Terminal, Bridge of Spies, and now The Post, and with whom he also produced 2001's Band of Brothers and 2010's The Pacific for HBO, what it was like with The Post making a movie set in the early 1970s that addresses the challenges faced by women in the workplace and journalists standing up to a hostile government at a time when those very same issues are front and center once again, plus much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Tom, thank you so much for doing this. Scott, really appreciate it. it's a pleasure to be sitting here. So, we always begin and we kind of go chronologically, but where were you born and raised and what did your folks do? I for was a born
3: in Concord, California. My mom and dad were still married. My dad was, he was a cook, the head cook of like dinner house restaurants, uh-huh. union dinner house restaurants, union waiters. They had names like the Seawolf, the Castaway, yeah. Castaway Restaurant, oh, which where later I washed dishes oh, wow. when I was in college. That was in 1956. Mm-hmm. Peak year for birth the United States of America. <laughs> We're still the economic motor that drives right. the United States economy. <laughs> well, and and the interesting
1: thing I came across prepping for this was that I couldn't believe you moved so many times by mm-hmm. – what yeah. was the stat? It was crazy.
3: Well, but the the restaurant business is yeah. the thing that you go, to, you go into work, if someone's pissed off at you, and you're pissed off at them, and so you quit, literally. We yeah. walk out right then and there. And you go to a phone booth, you make two phone calls, find somebody else who has a job for you, and say, hey, you know, I, hey well, thank God you called. I, I, we need somebody in Reno, and next thing you know you're living in Reno. <laughs> right. That was one aspect of it. The other part is my, my parents got divorced in 1961, I believe. And that began a, a bunch of moves so that by the time I was born in 56, and 66 I had moved into my 10th home. That's unbelievable. Uh, I, I thought it was fun, actually. I mean, it was. we we had a lot of differing personalities flow through <laughs> our lives, but uh, I never was intimidated by Moving into a new place. One thing I, I wondered was, you know, and I know you have
1: mixed feelings when this word comes up because that, from other interviews, but likability is the thing
3: that I think it can be annoying. Because can we call it accessibility access- I think, right, you right. Know, or, you know, daily contentment, <laughs> something like that? Well, I mean, an, an incredibly moral sense of fair play. How about yeah, that? All can of that. Have that.
1: But I wonder and, you know, I, I we can talk about why that would be annoying at, at a certain point. Was that in some ways a byproduct of just having to ingratiate yourself into all these different communities?
3: Well, no, because uh, my siblings—they reacted very differently. Yeah. My, you know, my brother was older; brother was very shy, mm-hmm. and so he didn't he didn't take to it well at all. I, I, this is just my DNA. This yeah. is just you know, this is just how I'm how I'm born. And you
1: were even at that age; you were like kind of the class clown and whatever.
3: Well, I, let's—I was uninhibited. Is it a type A personality? <laughs> I think I was just always a type A personality. Right. Right. I don't have an awful lot of cognizant memories of it, but I would say probably on day two or day three I felt completely comfortable where I was. Wow. And enjoyed it. I think the best signpost of it is I I loved going to school. I loved the structure of it. I loved the hang. I loved the stuff that I was good at. Mm-hmm. I think I was kind of like labeled an accelerated kid wow. until I was in fifth grade, and then everything at home kind of went to hell in a handbag. But I loved every subject, and I liked all my teachers, and I liked all my friends. I think that's a good hint at what your what your natural right. personality was. I've just always kind of been that way. So when you went off
1: to high school, I saw that a couple things happen. You became... Religious
3: for a period there. I was involved with a really great group of people. Yeah. Man, it truly was. And yeah. it was just yeah. uh, and so kind that, of like a big young life kind of organization, campus crusade yeah. things. Folks like that. First of all, the people were hilarious. Some of the funniest people. Yeah. I still. Uh, they they helped shape my sense of humor really just cute girls. They just all were. <laughs> right. But it was actually, it was an intellectual place for me to be. We were talking about high-concept stuff. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were pursuing sort of like the great questions of the cosmos. Granted, you know, with a New Testament slant and all mm-hmm. that, but even there, there was a sense of personal responsibility and an individuality that made you part of something that was much bigger than yourself, mm-hmm. which is very powerful. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the thought was, well, what do you think of this? Mm -hmm. You know, what do you think of this passage or what do you think of this concept or what do you think of this credo Mm -hmm. or precept? And that was really important for me in high school, I think, at a time when you are looking for your tribe. And actually, in high school, I found two tribes. That was one. And the other was when... I realized that high school was something other than you know the track team and a biology class. Because when I discovered the drama class, because a friend of mine was a friend of mine was in the play, and I thought, "What? <laughs> you, <laughs> you can, can do, do this? <laughs> this?" It was. I just thought it was kind right. of like a fabulous racket because I did a version of the drama class in every single class I was in. At some point, I you know, I mouthed off, cracked <laughs> wise, <laughs> put on a little bit of a show. You know, in the first seven minutes right. of the class, and discovered that there was actually. A uh, course that was taken as seriously as the yearbook staff, or uh, or the football team, or or the electronics laboratory. I thought, oh man, this is a place for me. So who was
1: Raleigh Farnsworth? This is somebody I know. You thanked in
3: your first Oscar. Yeah, acceptance yeah. Well, uh, Mr. Farnsworth was a very well dressed, very well groomed man with very, very loopy, very particular handwriting. Okay. And if you had told me at the end uh, he's a homosexual, yeah. I would have said, first off, what is a homosexual? Yeah. Yeah. And then I would have said, no way. Yeah. There's no teacher that is a homosexual. Yeah. But he loved drama. A lot of drama teachers, I think, maybe in some other type mm-hmm. of high schools, I don't take it seriously, is somebody who teaches that had been assigned the drama class. But Mr. Farnsworth, he was a renaissance man when it came out. He loved to design the sets and so, and he also loved doing real plays. We had this one exercise at one point where he gave us all these kind of like plays to read and uh-huh. it turned out that the plays were specifically written for high school dramatics. Uh-huh. And I ended up thinking that, I said, this is not a real thing, it's like so simplistic and." It's like it's like it's been specifically written right. for high school. Students. And he said that's exactly what it <laughs> is. So when we were the, we were doing the scenes that we would do for like Ray Bradbury's Dandelion Wine and Box and Cox and the first play I was in in high school was Tennessee Williams' Night of the Iguana. Mm-hmm. And for him to do Night of the he wanted to do Night of the Iguana because he wanted to design the set and have it built. <laughs> right. But we did. I went to a three year high school, so I I, I was in the drama department for this the last two years because mm-hmm. I didn't discover it until then. Mm-hmm. And there was a fall play and a spring. Music Musical, and the spring musical was a big deal because in the years that I was there, we did My Fair Lady in South Pacific mm-hmm. and we did Night of the Iguana and then Twelfth Night. And, you know, look, these are real plays. Yeah. So it wasn't a hobby. It wasn't like an after school activity. It was a real discipline yeah. that we ended up studying. And I'm trying to think if there was any other class that was the reason to go to school. I took one world geography class that was fascinating. And it's those kind of classes where you don't even have to think. You just, your eyes roll, you just get it and it's instantaneous and you just ace it without even trying, as opposed to, you know, a boring version of the humanities, which you don't really get or American government at the, which at the time was just embroiled in literally Watergate because it was, you know, 73, 74.
1: You go off to community college, which I know you've written about being you said that the one that you went to is quote the place that made me what I am today, close quote. You yeah. and I know that it also inspired Larry Crown, which is yeah. one of the films that you've directed. Yeah. Yeah. What happened there before I know you ended up going on to California State University at Sacramento, but what was it about community college? And particularly I, I heard about a chat with the guy, John Gilkerson, that really started. Oh things well, for John you?
3: yeah, John was a brilliant puppeteer. He was actually he did marionette. John was like a world class puppeteer. We were in the same high school class. Mm-hmm. He was just an artist, one of these kind of guys that was in high school, but he was actually more like he was a 42-year-old accomplished artist. He just happened to be a senior in yeah. high school <laughs> the same time I was. And John did everything. He just, he just eventually, he was like junior Mr. Farnsworth. Yeah. He did everything, and he, he could build anything, design anything, act anything, sing anything, do anything. Mm-hmm. He was just this guy with that kind of, like, knowledge of, of it all. He was Professor Higgins. <laughs> and he played and we played Sebastian right. in Twelfth Night. But Chabot, C-H-A-B-O-T, named after the explorer Chabot, mm-hmm. there was no other college in existence that I could get into. I had no SAT scores. Uh, my joke was when you take the SATs, you get to send the test results to two colleges for yeah, free. Right, right. Actually, three for right. free. You don't have to pay. So I sent one to Yale, one to Villanova, And one to Chabot College because I was hoping (laughs) Yale and Villanova would just send me would send me a sticker or something. Thank you for your application. But at Chabot, everybody else I knew went off to college. So I was in one of the few people that were left in the same town, you know, in the same haunts, Mm -hmm. going to the same quarter pound for burgers and whatnot. And I ended up getting a job in the hotel business. I became a Mm bellboy and a bellman. Actually, Mm -hmm. it's derogatory to call anybody a bellboy. And so I, I did that on the weekends, and so I had like kind of a job. And going to school was a, just a thing in order to occupy time. Mm-hmm. It was just, well, what are you going to do? Get a job at Taco Bell? You know, you just there was. You have to go to school, right? Because right. otherwise, what are you going to do? Join <laughs> right. the Marines? Right,
1: right.
3: Which would have been good for me had I joined the Marines. <laughs> and while I was there, I was I just thought, well, there must be a purpose to this, and I figured out that the purpose was to take. The classes that are required, mm-hmm. all those they're in a book and they have an asterisk next to them, which right. means if you take this, the credit will transfer to wherever you may end up next, mm-hmm. say Yale or Villanova. Right, 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 right. And while I was while I was there, I think I went for a couple of semesters, a quarter. Excuse me, it was mm-hmm. on the quarter system, which I preferred. Mm-hmm. I was missing something huge in my life, and it was it was a drama class. Mm-hmm. So I started treating myself to at least one drama class per quarter. And sometimes it was just a reading class. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was like a quasi-acting performance Mm -hmm. class, but those are kind of like, let's go kill 50 minutes three times a week. (laughs) But I ended up, I took one class by a great guy, uh, Professor Glenn Debose. Glenn was a true theater director, Mm -hmm. meaning like all over San Francisco, he directed everything from bona fide shows that played in like the Marines Memorial Theater He actually directed like acts in North Beach, like Mm -hmm. for, you know, like topless dancers and stuff like that. But big (laughs) production Production, numbers, you know. So he ran a class that met at, I'm going to say, 6.45 in the morning. It just seems so early. But it was a brutal performance class because there was no celebration of the fact that you were there doing it. Mm -hmm. It was only to do it. Mm we would go into a a stone-cold rehearsal studio that was nothing but brick and hard linoleum Mm -hmm. on the floor. We'd sit in folding chairs, and he would force us to perform very specific exercises. One of them was he broke us up in... I remember it so Mm -hmm. well because everything he did was a challenge to Mm -hmm. us, and the challenge was his getting over our own self-consciousness. One was he took the most non-Shakespearean of passages, uh-huh. which are just servants setting up a table. And he said, you need to take these 10 or 12 lines, and you have to make it come to life. And first of all, it's Shakespeare, so you know, you got to translate that. But then you also had to turn it into real behavior, as opposed to talking like this, which means you are performing the right. Shakespeare. That was a real eye-opener, as well as one other lesson, which was be funny. Uh-huh. And to say, okay, next week, on Monday, you, 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 and you are going to be funny, and on Wednesday, you three are going to be funny, and on Friday, you three are going to be funny. And that was the assignment. Uh-huh. You know how hard it is to be funny at 8.30 in the morning or 9 <laughs> o'clock in the morning? You right. think something right. is funny, and you try to, and I'm going to tell you, none of them were funny. Right. But the point of that was saying, look what the knowledge of what you had to accomplish did to what you actually accomplished. If you are going to be performing in a comedy, mm-hmm. that means the audience that come in has paid for a comedy. Right. That means you have to, you can't just rely on a type of material. You have to have some other degree of concept yep. of it. And it was brutal. But it seems to
1: have made an impression on you. Yeah.
3: Him. Yes, it, it really did. Now, John, John Gilkerson, I've been going to school for a while and, and two things happened. One was... I ran into John. He, we, he had some friends that were there and uh, he wasn't even going to school. He uh-huh. was just working as a puppeteer, uh-huh. a marionette. He was just this Renaissance guy who was always off, off in the workplace pursuing everything that he could do. And he said, what are you doing? He said, well, you know, I'm taking sociology and have a zoology class and I'm taking this one, you know, reading plays class. He says, well, why aren't you auditioning for shows? Uh-huh. And I says, well, I really can't. He, he said, shame on you, shame on you. You used to be auditioning for shows and you should be performing in plays. And I said, "Well, I can't. I mean, I'm in college now, and that doesn't really happen, does it?" Then I was I was working at the Hilton Hotel, uh-huh. the Oakland Hilton Hotel, occasionally carrying suitcases for share. <laughs> really? I said, yeah, big deal. <laughs> Kareem Abdul Jabbar, right. he played for the Lakers. Right. And my boss, a great guy, the bell captain, a guy uh-huh. named Lou Rice. He said, uh, "So you are going to school?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to Chabot. Oh, that's yeah, good college, good college. Yeah, what are you studying?" Well, I guess I'm studying theater because that's the only, you know, Consistent, by that time I'd had yeah. five or six theater classes. Yeah. They said, oh, really, theater? I mean, like, like doing plays? And I said, uh, yeah. Well, are you doing any plays we could go see? And I said, well, boss, I can't because I, I work here, you know, three or four days a week. And they said, oh, well, we, we can move the schedule around if you want to do a play. And based on that, I auditioned for uh, a production of Our Town. I played George Gibbs. Mm-hmm. And his kindness and also his awareness that, I'm not going into the hotel business. I'm the, right, right. I'm the, I'm the kid who works, you know, nights right. on weekends. But he did. We slid it around, and I ended up doing a play for the first time, and that was all she wrote, you know. Well, so eventually you move over to Cal State, and
1: I know there was another guy who was there who had a – actually, I guess, was outside of
3: the university, but who was Vincent Dowling? Vincent Dowling was a guest director at the downtown sort of community semi-pro theater, there was an actress in Sacramento who had met him and had worked with him at the great... He was artistic director of the Great Lakes Shakespeare mm-hmm. Festival in Cleveland, Ohio. He had come over from the Abbey. He had worked in at, at the Abbey Theater in Dublin and London and what have you. And he'd come to America in order to stake his claim and to build his edifice. He mm-hmm. would, and it was going to be the Great Lakes Shakespeare Festival. And he came to Sacramento, to where, which was the theater that she had worked at, as a guest director... And he directed uh, production of the Cherry Orchard because he also liked to do the he also liked to do the translations. Mm-hmm. He had read every translation there was of the Cherry Orchard, and so wrote <laughs> his own. And it was a community theater production. And I I did not get cast at a show at school, and I thought, well, that's it. I'll I'll never work again. And heard about these auditions and was cast as Yasha in the Cherry mm-hmm. Orchard. And when Vincent came in and directed, he was like a god to us because he, he literally said, you know, the work in the theater is more <laughs> fun than fun. It is. It's why we're all here. It's why we're all here, because we seek something great. The greatest job on the earth is to be a repertory actor. And I just thought he would just was the grandest, most flamboyant character. That his wife came in, his daughter Barbara was in the play. She was from Ireland mm-hmm. as well, and what he needed was he needed bodies at the Great Lake Shakespeare Festival to change over the sets because it was still in rotating repertory theater. So everywhere he went, he collected three or four, two at a time of people they who don't. who had come work for him, and he would say, "Now, now, no, no, Tom Machine, Tom Machine, I think you you could be you could be an actor. I can offer you a, a chance to perform, but I cannot." I cannot pay you any money, (laughs) but I can provide you with something much more valuable, and that is a season of professional work in the Uh theater. And he was absolutely right. We went there and all we did was change over the sets and work ourselves into puddles. You know, you're, you're a kid and it's a blast. And you all understudied some roles, but mostly you you, you got a couple of lines as a, as a spear carrier or servant number two or what have you. And there was, I think, 17 of us or so that he had collected from, every, from far away, Sacramento, California, and all over Ohio when he would go off and lecture or what have you. And I was, ended up being there for three years, and I joined the equity company at the end of that first year because they needed, they needed two people in a, in a cast in Taming of the Shrew. In order to tour Ohio on an arts grant, and it just so happened, Equity said, "If you're if you're on an arts grant, everybody has to be Equity." And instead of paying an actor three hundred or four hundred dollars a week to come in and play it, they paid myself and a, this fabulous actress named Janice Akers, They paid us, you know, hundred minimum, you know, two hundred eight dollars a week or something <laughs> like that. So and,
1: and the that result money. of those years, I guess, with him, where it seems was that by seventy-eight, you. You're ready to go try it in New York, see what you can do there. I know that that, it didn't click to the extent that you probably hoped when you went there, but it was, so what I'm wondering is how from not having great luck in New York, you ended up not long afterwards getting your first
3: screen work with uh, Bosom Buddies. I, I, mean, ha- I had phenomenal luck. Literally, the it was the hand of God or something. I, I, I came to New York City with unemployment. That's a big deal. Yeah. I had worked because I had worked for 25 weeks in Ohio. I had 25 weeks of unemployment. Mm-hmm. I was married. My son, Colin, was born in 77. So he was over a year old. We should just remind people. So you, you first got married. You were 20. I was 20. Well, I got married when I was 23, but I, we were together, but you were together I, at 21. 20, yeah, you were yeah, father I, at 21. I was father at And now you're having to pay some bills. Well, New York City was different than you could get. I I had an apartment, it was a horrible apartment, but <laughs> I had it for a little over two hundred dollars a month. And yeah. I had enough I had worked maybe I like had nine thousand bucks over the course of the year and if you didn't take any deductions, that I mean, you got, got a pretty good check, you know, back from the government. I did have twenty five weeks of, of, of about two hundred and fifteen bucks a week from the state of Ohio. Took a while for that to come in. But to have moved to New York City, with all I had was the connections of my friends mm-hmm. from Great Lakes. They all said, you have to move to New York. That's the only place to be an actor. And here's what you will do. I had people that helped me out every step mm-hmm. of the way, including sometimes bringing a quart of milk into the house. And I moved in just, just before Thanksgiving of 78 and went back to Cleveland for a final season in 79 and then returned. And just after 1980, I got cast in this low-budget slasher film by absolute fluke. I had some representation by way of a manager. Then in early 1980, I went on a, you know, I think the ABC, American Broadcasting Company, was had this idea that they were going to develop their own on-air talent. And Joyce Selznick, who was, you know, legendary in both name and, um, and duties, swept through town and saw 8 million people. And without really knowing what the hell was going on, I ended up flying on an airplane for the first time from New York to Los Angeles (laughs) and auditioning for everything under the sun, and from that came a thing called Bosom Buddies*.
1: And then you're out in L.A. and it starts.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the initial foray out in L.A. was tough because it's a lot more expensive to live out there, and by that time my son's getting older and there's a lot more kind of needs that go on. And mm-hmm. you'd be you'd you'd think that if you if you go suddenly you're making five thousand dollars a week, but that's after taxes and after commissions. It's amazing how much we it had still had a very much a hand-to-mouth right. existence. And then you get into the brutal aspect too of if you're doing the show, which was really, you know, crazy fun. Although mm-hmm. if you look at the early episodes of it, I'm just shouting. I'm just <laughs> I'm just screaming, you know. We operated. should remind
1: people it's you and Peter Sclary yeah. playing Men who dress in drag in order to live in an apartment yeah. for women.
3: it was a delightful kind of like <laughs> modern age ripoff of right. some like it hot, right, and whatnot. Right, right. Yeah. So we're in drag and we're running around, and the union there with Peter was just crazy important for I think for both of us. Mm-hmm. Peter and I were the guys. We were young. We were going through an awful lot of stuff in our in our personal lives, and we're also just trying to we're just trying to survive in right. this. Uh, we, we described it as every week we had to build this kind of like shoddy biplane right. and, and fly it on Friday nights.
1: I read that you, that it was because of, I guess, seeing you in bosom Buddies and then also a guest appearance that you made on Happy Days that really led Ron Howard to reach out to you for Splash, but initially not for for the part that you ended up playing. Yeah,
3: I mean, Ron was trying to get established as a director. He just wanted to be a director. He directed a movie called Night Shift. Yeah, he yeah. had made Night Shift, and that was a low-budget thing, but it really worked. He had been hell-bent on being a director since, I mean, when he was a teenager yeah. on, on Andy Mayberry. Yeah. So what happened was is that the guys who wrote Splash, but Lowell Logans Bob Bablo Mandel, had been on Happy Days, that they saw me do this guest shot. And they could not get anybody to make Splash to be cast in it. It was a medium-budget mm-hmm movie that was being made for the new Disney wing called Touchstone. Mm-hmm. And Disney at that point had, you know, such motion picture classics as Condor Man, <laughs> Gus, the field goal kicking mule, <laughs> Herbie, the love bug seven, right. the boat nicks. They They made movies like that. Right. And so here, Ron Ronnie Howard from Happy Days was going and Opie Cunningham was going to make <laughs> a movie about a mermaid. And so there was nobody on either the A list or the B list that was clamoring to right, be in right, this movie. Right, right, right. And I thought I was going in to read for the Funny Brother because I'd done a sitcom, and that was about the only way I was being viewed as anything. You know, I had big hair and a geeky face and a <laughs> squeaky voice. And when I went in to read for it, I met Brian Grazer first. And I was um, up to that point, every producer, or director I had met were intimidating. You know, older figures. You know, not quite cigar-chomping right, guys, right. but guys. You know, with their names on parking places and. You know, they go to restaurants like La Dome and <laughs> restaurants on Jefferson right. and what have you. And so um, instead, I walked in and I met this guy who kind of dressed like me, was more or less my same age. That was Brian Grazer. Mm-hmm. And my question was kind of like, how did you get to become a mm-hmm. producer? What, did you kneel in front? Okay. Did Walt Disney tap you on the shoulders <laughs> with, uh, you know, the sword of Arthur's I right. hereby dubbed thee right. a producer? And so he and I were talking. I talked to a guy in business that i had never met before, like an absolute peer. And that was very, there. It's very comforting. And then when Ron came in and we kind of like did some some reading back and forth, a day or so later, I got a call to come back and audition again, which I viewed as, oh, hey, I got a call back. Right, That's right. always this. But he said, no, we don't want you to read for Freddie, the brother. We want you to read for Alan, which was the quote unquote lead. Yep. And I said, oh, oh, all right. All right. So prepared that and went in. And back in that day, Ron, Ron was playing around. They had camcorders by that point. Mm-hmm. And he had this new JVC camcorder with a mini VHS, so there's a, right. he, he videotaped, you know, kind of an audition. And lo and behold, I mean, this was they, it was all rental furniture. It was old Disney, so it was it all looked like a bus station in Selma, Alabama. You know, <laughs> it didn't look like a movie right, studio. Right. It literally they had faded outlines of of like the Seven Dwarfs that had fallen <laughs> off the wall, but you could see still the outline <laughs> right, of the house. Right, she right. has hands on it. Then they called up and they said, "Okay, listen, um, you've got the part. We're going to cash it. And I said, whoa, all right. But in my mind, I was still in a, you know, we were still making this low budget kind of like under the radar sweet movie. And he said, well, here's the thing. I want to do a camera test because I'm getting a lot of pushback from the studio on Daryl Hanna. Because they didn't know if she could be mysterious right, or charming right, or anything right. like that, so I went. We're going to come and we're going to do a We're going to do a test on film, which mm-hmm, is a big deal mm-hmm. because it's a lot more, mm-hmm. a lot yeah. more expensive. Yeah. And I said, okay, all right. Uh, but I, I asked him and said, can I just? Is there any way that I'm going to get fired because I'm not very good in this test? And he laughed. He said, we probably won't right. even see. We probably won't even see the front of right, your head. Right. And that was, that was that. When that happened, you're making a movie, and just the knowledge that you're making a movie is a ridiculous, you have a job, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no better place, there's no better time in an actor's Mm -hmm. life, I think, that the moment he understands he has the job and before the work begins, because you're just Johnny Potential. Right. You get to say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to start shooting. Right. And we would shot in New York, and I never had per diem before. Yeah. And, you know, it was like, like crazy. But making that movie ended up being, because it was with peers, mm-hmm. because I viewed, well, I certainly kind of worshiped Ron because I grew up with him. Yep. But they were all a bunch of young guys. And we we're all. everybody was hungry in order to, to make as much of the movie as they were allowed to make with limited amount of money and limited amount of time. So And that started steady film work and the Well, not for about a year or so. A little after that. Yeah, I ended up doing a couple of episodes with for Gary Goldberg of uh, Family Ties.
1: But once and, it got started, I want to ask you this because it seems like there were for the next few years Some uh, great moments, particularly Big, which I... Well, that took a long time. I I made a bunch
3: of... I'd said yes to every movie that came down the
1: pike. But just to set it up, though, because amongst those... So, as you say, the next few years, there were a lot of movies. Big, though, the first of the two for Penny Marshall, the other a few years later with A League of Their Own. But that one, New York Times said in their review, quote... Mr. Hanks has crossed the line that separates a leading man from a movie star. Close quote. You got your first Oscar nomination. Yeah. That was that's on the one side of the ledger. On the other side, as you've referenced, there were a number of movies that didn't go over especially well. That were you were asked to do a similar sort of thing. It sounds like, and just punchline, The Burbs, Turner and Hooch, Bonfire of the Vanities, Joe Versus the Volcano. Ultimately, it sounds like you reached sort of a breaking point after. A league of their own. Well,
3: Punchline was a was a very organic experience for mm-hmm. me. Which we actually made before Big. It came out afterwards. Uh, but yeah, there is I I viewed myself as being a repertory actor, which mm-hmm. means if they ask you to do it and you have room in your schedule, you do it. And and every one of those films had a potential for being something unique and sensational. And the the truth is in the uh, movies are binary they either work or they do not work they're either ones or they're zeros and it's not you don't have a 50 50 shot at it being a one you don't the the odds are that you're gonna you're not going to be able to capture the zeitgeist of what exists there on the screen and you know there's ended up moments being of all those movies that were great but I I, quite think I put my head down and I plowed through the mall and I said, I can make anything work, Mm -hmm. which, number one, is not true. But (laughs) what you learn by that is that it's it's not a purely instinctive process. You can't manufacture momentum or adrenaline. Mm -hmm. You can't if you don't have the time, if you don't, the wherewithal will wear you down. And so there was a point when I was older, I was in my mid 30s. And I essentially said, I'm, there's a whole type of part I'm not going to play anymore. Just to play out that part of the conversation, you said these were pussies. Yes. And I don't mean that in the uh, – uh, <laughs> Literal. In the – what am I saying? The Donald Trump no, – right. uh, I don't mean it like that. Right, right. Yeah, I, I sat down with my – I sat down with my agent. It was after we – it actually was after we had made League of Their Own. Because mm-hmm. I think prior to League of Their Own, I was going to do some stuff and, they, and it all collapsed. I had gotten married to Rita, and mm-hmm. uh, we had we started having a family, and there was there was just stuff that didn't happen. And when League of Their Own came around, I was in a different place professionally. I had a whole different sort of approach to it. Mm-hmm. I had felt as though that I had been I had done enough work in order to be established in the business, mm-hmm. but there was still sort of like a physiological desire, a fire in the belly that I had that was not being fed. And I sat with my agent, that Richard Lovett, who is still my agent, and uh, well, and who became him. your agent though, out of this
1: frustration, right? You, had, you A just little you bit, gave yeah. an interview that I thought was so interesting in this new CAA oral history, where you you had been at William Morris, yeah, yeah. and you said, "I'm doing the same thing over and over. Why is this happening?" And somebody said, well, we think you should do big, too. Yeah, 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 that's <laughs> that, true. That sort of didn't get the point, Yeah, and that, was the, that was the end of that In yeah, the beginning of CAA, right? Yeah, it was, right? yeah,
3: yeah. Well, Richard had also written me a letter. Uh, you know, part of this, part of it is the long ongoing. Yeah. That oral history of CAA is the oral history of pinching clients, poaching <laughs> clients from other people. But I was at a place where an awful lot of chef stuff was changing, and... By going off and doing a uh, league of their own, which reunited me with Penny, which yeah. was a very comfortable thing, yeah. and Penny asking of me, "You can't do that same thing. I don't want you to be charming. I don't. I don't. I don't want to have a love interest in this. You can't do that. You have to do something else." And by sort of like being liberated from that, mm-hmm. and also having the uh, allowance from Penny to go to this other place, when it was done, when well, we finished, and I, you know, I just I that, that movie was. Just a magnificent experience, and it also was extremely heartfelt. It mm-hmm. was a more powerful movie than I think emotionally that it, it should have been mm-hmm. in some ways. But that's because a woman directed it mm-hmm. and, uh, and it was uh, so much about you know a team of women right. playing a sport that I said, okay, uh, I'm not going to play pussies anymore. And he said, what, well, what does that mean? I mean, I'm not going to play the guy who can't figure out why he doesn't have the thing or he's not in love with the deal or right. he's, oh, this is too much. Oh, I right. can't believe I'm in something, uh, la, la, la. <laughs> and that that removed uh, literally just tons of paper mm-hmm. off, my, off my desk, the stuff that came in over the transom and the thing that were going for me was, you're 35. I had uh, I had a kid. I'd been through an awful lot. And I was just figuring out both the technique and the art of acting on screen, which is you learn an awful lot by thinking you're doing something right. And then you look at it and it ends up being where did it go off the rails? Did it go off the rails in what I would Some mm-hmm. many times is that I didn't have it. Yeah. And there was also time and it, was, well, it wasn't in the material. Right. I convinced myself that it wasn't material and that I was banging it, and I wasn't. Right. And once that happened, I think the the next thing that sort of came along was an awful lot of really great. movies. Well, yeah, I
1: mean, along. this was, and I, I hope there really it's funny, are. Funny, you so know, I ma- can
3: remember more about this era than I can about the last three years. Of really? My life. Well, it's just you know, <laughs> it's just it was a different vivid time. And, yeah, you know, it was really hopping. Well,
1: if I may, I want to just obviously there's so many great movies that I I can't ask too much about each but I want to make sure we just touch on sure, some it? of the big ones. Yeah, so yeah. after that period where you're saying what's going to be a new type of project I'm going after, that was in 92 when League of Their Own came out. Yeah. 93, it's a whole new ball game. Let's in that year alone you you have two major movies, Sleepless in Seattle, yeah. big huge hit and Philadelphia the yeah. first I think your first really dramatic leading part about something bigger, serious, yeah, bigger.
3: yeah well that that i had made a movie called uh, nothing in common with yeah. jackie gleason and that that touched on a lot of bigger themes yeah no but
1: but uh, uh, i mean so nora efron who wrote sleeveless in seattle and you've got mail and lucky guy and who you guys have dedicated the post to she said in 1993 quote there are two kinds of romantic leading men in american movies there's the godlike person you've never met like Cary grant and there's the boy next door you've known all your life like jimmy stewart Tom falls in the second category, and that's what makes him such an inspired choice for the lead in Philadelphia, too. There's something familiar about Tom, and people find it very easy to relate to him. And that hammers home an important truth about AIDS that it's in your neighborhood and could happen to anybody. So to have those two in one year, this this first of the two rom-coms and working with Meg Ryan and then Philadelphia, where I, I read I think it was 35 Pounds You Lost to Play This Lawyer Who's Afflicted With AIDS, the first big Hollywood movie about no. AIDS— What can you say about that year that produced such two very different but hugely successful movies?
3: It was looking at the material before letting my instincts just kicked in. The construction, the writing construction of Sleepless in Seattle Mm -hmm. that Nora and her sister Delia did was intricate and tough and we fought over it. And I thought I was just complaining, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you're women writing about how, husband, how men react, relate to their sons. Mm-hmm. And I got news for you, gals. You're wrong. <laughs> Stuff like that. Right. And w- because she included us, all of us, mm-hmm. uh, but me in, in that process, the screenplay, the script, the movie changed substantially from our first meeting to, to mm-hmm. when it came out. And Nora, I think it was because of the way she certainly worked mm-hmm. with Mike Nichols when she was just a screenwriter, understood that that collaborative process mm-hmm. is not a threat to the authority or the vision of the director. It's actually part of it. Because I certainly came up with a bunch mm-hmm. of ideas and she said, no way in hell mm-hmm. are we doing this. Mm-hmm. But there was other stuff that was in there that altered the the thematic, the way we examined the theme mm-hmm. with the movie. And the theme was certainly about loss, but it was also about yearning, and it was also about it was also about magic. Mm-hmm. There's a bit in there where my character describes how he fell in love with his wife, mm-hmm. who has passed mm-hmm. away. And it's in the movie uh-huh. because I would just say, that's not how love
2: works. Love works like
3: la, 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 la. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being yeah. there. So I was no longer just an actor that was trying to say I can make this work. I was I was treated as a collaborative right. process. And it, and maybe because I was a cranky movie star by that time. <laughs> but there was also a, we, we were working with people who so, said, well, what, what should it right. be? Right after that with, with Philadelphia, I think Jonathan and Ron, nice wander, and Ed, the, uh, the producer, they requested a meeting with me. I didn't pursue it. This came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Would you go in and talk to Jonathan Demi mm-hmm. about, uh, about this, this thing? And I, and I gave it a read, and I was, a little bit was, why? You know, why me? And the theme was, I think of that, is don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. And ah, as soon as they said that, I got it. Because i do not have a countenance that makes people fear me I, you mm-hmm. know i'm not an intimidating guy which is fine mm-hmm. because that's part of the package right you know and so the bold thing about that i thought was that they were going to make a commercial big budget student and big budget at that time was like 30 30 yeah. million dollars but that's real cake, and it was going to have to compete with every other movie in the marketplace. It was not going to be a niche film that's going right. to play in three theaters that you make for two hundred thousand dollars. It was going to be a movie that needed to make a profit. Dealing with a subject that people were not that they did not want yeah. to broach. Right. It hadn't been broached. Actually, there were there was uh, Aidan Quinn had made an early Frost, which was an NBC TV movie. Mm-hmm. Bruce Davison, I long-time think, had, yeah, yeah, longtime companion. Yeah. But this was going to be literally a you know a, a roulette wheel gamble for the studio and for everybody involved. Had you ever poured
1: yourself so much into something where I mean, I know that weight loss can, is not the thing yeah, that, that actors yeah. want to talk about. All like yeah. that's oversimplifying. After, after two it. weeks, weight loss doesn't mean anything. Right, it's just you just keep doing it. But I mean, the whole emotionally as well on top of the thirty-five pounds or whatever. That's I don't know. I mean, it just seems like that it was. Would...
3: An, it, I realized I had to become educated yep. in something that I was really unfamiliar with. I I think that the the first time I did that really was with Punchline, mm. which was earlier, but that got into the whole concept of. You know, I said earlier, the greatest moment for an actor is when he learns he gets the job before he starts. That is the great feeling. But by that time, the roles had become, for me, the moment I learned that I got them, I started working on Mm -hmm. them. And the only way you work on them is you you can't ask enough questions, you can't imagine enough scenarios, and you can't go over the beats of the story enough times. And that, with Philadelphia... And also the the intimidating process of acting opposite a desk from Denzel Washington. Denzel, yeah. Denzel was already Denzel right, by that right, time, right. a formidable right. presence. I kind of like felt like I was suddenly on the same same ball club as you know Reggie Jackson right. or Babe Ruth or something right. like that. He was a guy that was really good at what he did, and I had to both observe and keep up and relate to it. That ended up being the crux of an all-encompassing, all-encompassing experience as far as making a movie
1: goes. So you you win the first best actor Oscar for that. The next year you're in Forrest Gump, which I think people may forget how huge a, a hit that was. They remember it's a hit, and they remember it was great and loved and we best were, picture. That we were,
3: was massive. We were we were not just geniuses; we were <laughs> diabolical <laughs> <Right>? geniuses. <laughs> right. I remember doing Forrest Gump came out in June, uh, June or July, I believe. And never left. It didn't go away for eight months. And every I began to do. We started doing articles on it, you know, press, and they were asking us how we did this, you know, and did you know? It's a, it, the joke was, if it had just only made, if it had been a big hit, right? We they would have said we were geniuses, right? But because it was this ongoing, never ending right. monster hit, we were diabolical geniuses. <laughs> it's just like, what have you done? <laughs> what have you done to the psyche? What is it? <laughs> What is it? Because Pulp Fiction, had, but you guys aren't Pulp Fiction. Right. What have you done? Right.
1: And, and I mean, the interesting thing there was that it was primarily
3: just out of a desire to work with Eric Roth, right? I mean, it was- I would known Eric Roth because I'd come close, he'd written, uh, Eric Roth was a screenwriter that could, that could write anything. Yeah. And in fact, even Wendy Feinerman, who was the producer yeah. of it, I, I, we had gone down a couple of paths with Eric that just never got the financing. And it was when Bob Zemeckis read Eric Roth's script. I remember Wendy said, do, do you think, I had read the book by Winston Groom, and he said, do you think Eric could adapt this? And I said, Eric Roth can write anything, because <laughs> he's, he's a genius. So he wrote this thing that was really thick and different. I mean it was it was like a it was like a three-ring mm-hmm. circus, man. It had so many elements to it. And but when Bob read it and he ended up seeing what to pair away and what to add and what to figure mm-hmm. out, then it just became boy, that was the truly, truly every conceivable sinew sense question we ended up banging into that thing. And we never we never right. stopped. Questioning what we were doing, right. even on the days we were shooting. Right. Are we? It's is any of this going to matter? <laughs> Are we doing anything right? Well, here? Plus, you guys were in the midst of doing something that I think
1: I remember when people first saw it, they couldn't fathom how you had done it with the, yeah. all the CGI from the feather yeah. to Lieutenant Dan to all the the people presidents. You yeah,
3: and the, yeah, everybody thinks I played ping pong that <laughs> way and,
1: and what have you. But I mean, in the making of it, were you
3: going through this, saying like this could? actually be a disaster. Sure. Yeah, You think that every time. Yeah. I remember when we were, we had shot the most grueling physical parts of it in Beaufort, South Carolina, and we were now in savannah and we were shooting the bench scenes right. on the right. on the I on was the just bench there
1: last month
3: yeah and i mean it was it was just tons of dialogue and it was we only had a limited amount we had the other the other cast members were coming in and you know on right. joining me on the bench for all that kind of <laughs> stuff i said bob you know this is 20 pages of dialogue and we have a day and a half to get this right I can't get 20 pages of dialogue. And so we ended up coming up with multiple cameras, and they actually put it on cue cards for a while. But every shot, once you do it, once you have it, and it's not a problem memorizing. But I asked him, I said, Bob, is anybody going to give a shit about this (laughs) Because on one level,
1: it's – I don't know if this is the politically incorrect word, but he's sort of like a simpleton guy who you have to connect on the emotional level or you're in trouble, right?
3: Yeah. I don't know how we landed on that per se. I always said it like this. I said – I don't know what the affliction he has. I don't know what it is mm-hmm. about him. And th- I, we studied people. We, there are a lot of examples of it. And to come around with it, I said, well, he, he's a guy that operates in the real world. So it's not like he's so handicapped that he has to right. you know, be taken care of. He doesn't need a caregiver. He, right. he moves around. So I just said he can only operate at the speed of his own common sense. Mm-hmm. And he's only got common sense from four people in his life. Right. His mother, right. Bubba. Lieutenant Dan and Jenny. That's right. the only places that he ever got common sense from. I think the thing that really, the reason where it, it, it ended up throwing as deep as it did was because Vietnam had not been addressed mm-hmm. for since Platoon. Yeah. And the story of the loss of Bubba in Vietnam, and the saving of Lieutenant Dan, there's there's two moments in it that just still kill me. Mm-hmm. Is when Gary Sinise's Lieutenant says, "I never thank you for saving my life," mm-hmm. and then he jumps in the water and floats mm-hmm. away. That's one. And then later on, when Forrest is going to marry Jenny, it's at the wedding, and Lieutenant Dan shows up on his magic legs. And there's a moment where they just look at each mm-hmm. other, and it's it's that moment there that I think is cracked the movie wide open because even if you were just of a generation where you knew of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. You knew that it was this great divisive moment, and at, at, at 94, so about 20 years after mm-hmm. after the fact, I think there was an exhale mm-hmm. that that movie provided in regards to Vietnam. And and for you,
1: on a personal level, only the second person ever to win back to back. Yeah, that scripts. was did cool. That that mean was all nice.
3: Well, it did, but it also came at the end of an eight-month process yeah. of just getting, you know, a, a brand of attention is really nice. Right. But white-hot attention that never goes away is really unhealthy for the soul. Mm-hmm. And having to constantly explain, explain, explain your motivations right. or whatever you did, and there's no explanation right. for this. Why does the movie work so? So uh, Tom Hanks said, "The foot is the gump." This is uh, you are like American naivete. You are American. You know, you're having to go around the world right. and talk about questions right. like that and so by the time the the academy award came i was aware that it was a you know it was a crazy ass moment right. but it, i was also by that time i was like a somnambulist. It, yeah. it was uh it, it all happened in another place in time and then just to cap that period and
1: capping probably the best three-year run of any actor if you look at it i mean as good as any the next year you have apollo 13 yeah yeah that came out And period. and that so you're back with ron and you're doing again, it seems like now things that it begins a period of just a lot of these are things that you were personally fascinated with starting from there with that with space. Then you're then you go in direct for the first time with yeah, that thing you yeah, do that thing where you it's do. your.
3: I also wrote that too. And, and wrote, I, I actually wrote that as an antidote to uh, the the worldwide press tour of Forrest Gump. So you could just focus. I was I was in hotel rooms and on planes and at homes, just slowly going nuts. And I needed a creative outlet that had nothing to do with the uh, and and then so that obviously
1: leads to your production company, Playtone. Yeah, Playtone. And then this first collaboration with Steven Spielberg. Out of I think now it's five, or with the post uh, might be. I think that's the fifth.
3: Yeah, I had the first conversation about my first ever movie with Steven, which was Saving Private Ryan, from the editing room of that thing you do. And I was just thinking, this doesn't. How, do you, how does this happen? <laughs> how do I read a thing that is great? Then have Steven. I knew Steven it, socially. Right. And I'd done, like, the money pit for his company a long time ago, but I I never would have imagined in eight million years that he'd be calling me up to say, I'd really like to do this movie with you. (laughs) You know, I I was like that. And from that just came this... uh, he included me in the process of Saving Private Ryan because we started doing what he does, which is watch everything that's ever been made about it, right. imagine anything over and over again. The script was constantly in flux mm-hmm. because we – again, the genre had not been touched for years because yeah. all of them had become genre films. Right. It was either Sergeant Rocker's Halle Commandos or or some other version of you know Battlefield GI kind of thing. No one had – had touched on world war ii in a really 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 long time and with the the filmmaking capabilities of steven as well as the technology alone i knew and he was set out to turn the omaha beach into something like that had never ever 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 been 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 captured before on film and for that Look, I, I can't say that I know it, but knowing that what we were going to be spending three yeah. weeks on just getting to the top of the bluffs on Omaha Beach mm-hmm. was that was a high country there, man.
1: And you've said that, I guess, in a sign that that it was good that you were sort of lost in the work. You don't even remember all that much
3: about the making of that movie. No, I don't. No, there was I remember some, you know, uh, some individual moments. Of days, but we were we were really uh, there was a type of sink that Stephen allowed me, and I, I and quite I, honestly, I, I don't think I had deserved it to that point, but maybe because of the other work that he had done, he realized that if there's a guy who is treated like a compadre, <laughs> that that's actually an alliance that helps him do his job yeah. a little bit better. There was a very. The very specific day where I left, we were, in, we were in Ireland, and actually I told my wife, I said, I, I think I'm going to go in and have a fight with a boss today. And I said, <laughs> why? I said, well, look, look at this stupid scene. I literally said something, look at this stupid scene. Everybody has a line, and it's a witty line. It's a, like a comment on it. Everybody's kind of like smart-alecky right. and la-la-la, and, you, and, and everybody, everybody has a line in this scene. It doesn't, that doesn't happen in real life. Right. When I got to work, it was gonna be a day for night shot. And he said, okay, you're, you guys, you guys, and, and I literally, I took it and I Xed out the, I X'd out the pages, meaning talk to Steve. Yeah, And we got there and he said, okay, you guys are just, we're gonna be able to put some CGI explosion behind you. I just want you guys spread out because your silhouettes are going to be spread out on this herky-jerky kind of, kind of uh-huh. thing. So I said, okay. And I said, well, okay, look, and I pulled out the pages. And I said, right, look, can we, can we talk about this dialogue? Because <laughs> this is just this is just yeah. rotten. And Stephen went like this. Put his finger up. Pulled out his pages. Right. And it was an extra thing. Out. He says, you, uh, this dialogue is not going to be uh, – all I need is you guys walking. It's, it's a transition shot. And
1: so that kind of being on the same understanding about things would perhaps explain why you guys have reunited after that on Catch Me If You Can, the Terminal Bridge yeah. of Spies, and now The Post. It's just you – is there another director that
3: you've clicked with that much? I mean, I know uh, you've worked with Ron. I've now. worked with Ron a lot. I've worked with Bob uh, Penny. Yeah. I worked. You know, I've been willing to go back and work yeah. with other directors before because you, you're ahead of the game. There's no right. getting to know you kind of conversation. You you could be completely honest about what your thoughts are, and I think I'm a better collaborator now because I've worked with so many people over and over again, and I've learned how not to bother with some stuff.
1: I have to ask because w- with one of the Zemeckis reunions was obviously Castaway, and with that. I just wonder, has there ever been an acting challenge that you've had that was quite the same as being on, uh, on screen by yourself for, I think, 75 of the minutes, having shot the first part of it, then you go off yeah, for like a year, yeah. lose all this weight, come back and do it again. But I mean, is there anything that could have prepared you for that?
3: Well, in a lot of ways, it it, it was like making a silent movie, mm-hmm. because the first thing we did was removed all the dialogue from it, because we we had dialogue. He, you know, like the guy talked to himself. Right. And we got to the island. Literally, our first day on the island. We we're going to be there for the better part of a month. And I said, you know, Bob, I don't think there's any reason to say all this stuff there. I mean, unless I think someone's there, right? You don't do that, right? You don't say, hmm, what am, what am I going to do here? Well, I better climb this tree. <laughs> How am I going to get one of those coconuts? <laughs> and, you know, you don't say that right, stuff. Right. You just you just kind of do it. And that that ended up being. I, I would say that there were not to constantly talk about the days when I, you know, I was. 30-year-old man, but when that ended up paying off in every single job after that, because there is behavior, cinema, I think, as from an actor's perspective, is about behavior and mm-hmm. procedure, and it's not about dialogue. Sometimes it has to be about dialogue, but there's other times of just showing it works, and when I worked with Paul Greengrass mm-hmm. on Captain Phillips, which the way Paul shoots with his, Barry Aykroyd, is, they've been making documentaries yeah. for a thousand years. I said, I for the first day and a half, I said, where are the marks? Mm-hmm. You know, where are the focus marks? Where's the camera positions? Are, aren't we supposed to hit marks? And and Paul looked at me like I was, well, no, you yeah, know, well, you know, we could put a mark down if you wanted. Right. <laughs> totally because, because what happened is it became nothing but behavior and procedure. Yeah. And that was a, an insanely liberating moment because Paul was willing to work every scene in an ad hoc right. way as opposed to what do you think you would do here? Right. Then what is the requirement physically? Mm-hmm. I mean, literally in yeah. the physical universe right. of being here. And thirdly, what is the procedure that you've been trained right. to do? And I would say that in the modern era of yeah. uh, of my career, that's, that's the thing that I've slowly discovered as being one of the... One of the guiding principles. Well the the a synonym
1: for the modern era I would say post castaway which was your most recent Oscar nomination, I would call this the the take Tom Hanks for granted era because I think that people are so used to being it's like almost with Steven, everything he does is compared to such a high bar that he set with all his previous work that people sometimes I don't think they're comparing him or looking at the work. In the way they would look at anyone else. Well,
3: is. I think it's because nothing ever dies. Nothing ever goes away. I right. mean, I can go through the I can go through the grid on my direct television, and boom, there it is. Oh, Road yeah. to Perdition is on right. right now. Here's Castaway again. Oh, oh my! It, it it always is there. So, in a lot of ways, the first paragraph of every review on your new movie yeah. is about the path the movies the you made movies. in the past.
1: And also, so this brings us back to the the whole likability thing. You say even when you've played like an executioner in The Green Mile or a hitman in Road to Perdition,
3: yeah, shot guys in the head, <laughs> right? And, Literally, and they shot, shot them dead, in shot a him dead away. in the head. Ah, will... you, you did it for the right, <laughs> right reasons. You did it. You did it. You, you know, you didn't. You didn't want to electrocute those
1: guys. So does that feel like a, a an albatross in a way? Obviously, no. people mean it in a no. nice. No, it way, does. But...
3: Uh, you know, it did. I it it did when I was playing pussies, right? Uh, you know, in all honesty. <laughs> (laughs) Because you can't be honest in the circumstances as it, look, I'm 61 now. Mm And people know that they've been looking at me since they were little kids. Yeah. You know, I've been the nation's babysitter right? since right. home video came into <laughs> came into existence. You know? Right. And the fact that people can watch any movie you've ever made again and again and again anytime they want to, that, that comes into play. So there is a body of work that you can't you can't deny. You're not you're mm-hmm. not gonna get away from that. Robert De Niro has a body sure. of work, you know. Gary Oldman has a body of mm-hmm. work. Uh, Matt Damon has a body of work. It's like Greta Gerwig now has a body That's of getting, work that yeah. you examine that is part of And it's, do you go beyond that? Do you somehow take all of that and put it into a a new and different mix? The likability factor, I would view it as more like an accessibility factor. Uh And, geez, that's what I I think in a lot of ways, that's what you want. There's sometimes you are going to play an enigmatic figure on Mm -hmm. on screen. And you know how you do that? Take out the dialogue. Right. You know, if you don't know, you know, then you got to discern what you're saying. But I think now at this point, I'm kind of. I won't say liberated by it, but it's actually, it's an investment. I mean, you have it in your pocket somehow. Like, you know, Ben Bradley. Right. I knew Ben Bradley. I read Ben I read Bradley that, yeah. was one of the most magnetic personalities I've right. ever had dinner with. So in a way, it's good. You come with, if so you come with some baggage. I, Scott, right. Aren't, I, Aren't I a magnetic no, personality? So it, all, it all can kind of like blend in. Any
1: rhyme or reason for why these last few years, a lot of these characters and the standout performances have been Real people with real events. Let's just remind folks Captain Phillips, Bridge of Spies, Sully, people who Charlie Wilson's war, every man thrust into
3: extraordinary. Well, part of it, I think, is because the economics of motion pictures have changed, and there's studios that literally do not make adult dramas anymore. The mid-range thing is gone. They simply don't. I mean, Clint Eastwood making Mystic River, I mean, he had to do that on a low budget with no salary because otherwise they literally said, oh, we don't make adult dramas anymore. So you need some sort of like pre-knowledge of, of what the event in order to get people – oh, I heard of that. That might make a good movie.
1: Isn't it funny though that with both Captain Phillips and Sully, everybody goes in thinking they, what can they do with this? We already know the whole story. Yeah. And then you guys – I mean but the thing when I'm talking about underappreciate, the last two minutes or whatever of Captain Phillips where he's in shock and mm-hmm. dealing with that, I don't think anyone's ever – done better than that. I mean, that was unbelievable. People should go back and just watch those few minutes. And I mean, in some ways, do you feel when you see a moment like that or in a a next thing, I'll ask you about the post. But like in that
3: sense, I think it's like you're you're better than ever. Well, hey, thanks. I'll take that. (laughs) It comes down to is what's the right thing? Right. You know, what happened? How does how does how does this work? There was a reality that I discovered also in the course of making Sully, which was and I talked to Sully, Mr. Mm -hmm. Sullenberger himself, uh, at length about this. And that was, what's the inner pressure that's going on? With Captain Phillips, it is that he had just been through a horrible, terrible experience. And he had kept it all and had maintained it. And it's when he exploded. And that became about, that came about because it wasn't in the screenplay, but I asked Richard, because in his book, he talked about breaking down. And I said, "Okay, so you broke down." He says, "Yeah, I was. I was in a. Uh, I was in the shower, and I started crying in the shower, and, and I I started crying at the most at, at moments that didn't make sense to me." One of the Navy Seals came to him and said, uh, "Hey, how you doing?" Richard Phillips says, "I can't. I start crying for no reason whatsoever, and I don't know why." And the Navy Seal said, "You let that go. Don't stop." Because we do it too. And Mm -hmm. so find out from the Navy SEAL. And with Sully, I had to say, uh, I I, I was trying to just get down to the weight of what he felt was. And it was actually an 18-month process that he went through of those NTSB hearings. Mm -hmm. The weight was, is that he had no idea if at the end of those hearings, he would still be able to fly professionally. His career was on the line. And so you don't overweight it for the right. sake of drama. Right. But you don't underweight it if it's because that's not what the movie right. really is about. The more rocks you have right. in your pockets, just the more the more accurate it is.
1: So just finally, I want to ask you about this movie that we saw last night for the first time, which people are... Were you at the well, Q&A and, and everything night, like it was that? terrific. And I, I I, mean, i just curious. It sounds like it was brought to your attention and turned around in an incredibly quick way. First time you're ever working with Meryl, you're back with Stephen and telling a story that is set in, the, in 1971, but is as applicable today for reasons that you point out, not just for First Amendment reasons, but also women in the workplace, all of that. So on a personal level, why was it important to tell that? And what was it you know, like doing it with those people? You can't
3: be in better company. Well, the museum piece aspect yeah. of it was, is, is just, oh, like, I think it's delicious, you know. But at the end of the day, that won't carry any weight with anybody, the attempt in order to get it right. The story of K. Graham becoming the K. Graham that we all know is fascinating. The tightness of it all, this happens in a week. Mm-hmm. It is one week in
2: 1971.
3: That's unbelievable. And even in the footage uh, I've you know, studied Ben Bradley quite a bit, there's so much to talk to Ben Bradley about, but so when you come down to the Pentagon Papers, it's this asterisk, and he even says, you know, now, you know, <laughs> you think, well, what, what was what was the big deal? We, we were actually worried about going to jail in order just to print this this stuff that we had. It doesn't it doesn't even make sense, and that is to me that's an example of our society and our government is built on these tiny little ideological moments. In which the difference between right or wrong, literally defines us as a nation, going back to the very incredibly imperfect beginnings of of who we are as a who we are as a country, and uh, connecting and, and, right through this present. Well, it, well, yeah. And but here's the thing: when we were when we were making it, we had no idea that things would continuously get there the the way we have and if we didn't have our our the current president that we mm-hmm. have we would literally be making a museum piece right. that wouldn't nearly have the same sort of sort of power what i loved about it when i read it is that here's what i know because i read history for pleasure mm-hmm. i always have a nonfiction book that i'm mm-hmm. going over somehow or because it's all, vanity of vanities all of that, all is vanities there is nothing new under the sun. All of this has happened <laughs> mm-hmm. before. We've had the same people, we've had the same moments. It goes right back to, to July 2nd, 1776, and continues right along up to today. This, the, the current aspect of who we are is proscribed in tiny little moments in which someone is trying to maintain a status quo, mm-hmm. and somebody else is trying to bust it up. And in there is where America comes, becomes visible. Well, I can't thank you enough for doing this. And, and What a walk through a, a checkered, my checkered
1: career. No, thanks so much. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.